0: Good morning again, and I just want to welcome everyone who is here and those who are watching online. I know that uh, we are going through our uh, going, going on a journey through the Gospel of John. We are looking at the fifth chapter of this Gospel. Last Sunday we looked at verses one to nine at the healing of a man who was crippled for nearly thirty-eight years by the pool of Bethesda. If you recall, today we'll be looking at verses ten to twenty-three. Actually, I borrowed this title from C.S. Lewis, who says, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. But in essence, we are going to look at the deity of Christ. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, and let us dive into the text. As John wraps up the narrative about this man who was crippled for 38 years, John puts in a phrase which reads like this. I know we looked at it last time. And immediately, verse number nine, the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And read the last part with me, please. And that day was the Sabbath. And that day was the Sabbath. The fact that it was a Sabbath day must be quite significant that John had to inject that phrase at the end of verse nine. Why should this be mentioned? Let's move on to verse number 10. And what we see in verse number 10 is that the Jews therefore said to him who, uh, excuse me, and Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Uh Aha, we see something brewing here, isn't it? As you look at this passage, church, the story is intertwined with the issue of Sabbath. And which is why at the end of verse number 9, John drops a bombshell. And this is very typical of Hebrew writings. Church, what do we see here? Jesus healed someone that was fantastic. We should be thankful for that. But that's on a Sabbath day. Ah-ah, uh-uh, then we have a problem. So Jesus had this man on the Sabbath day to to stand up, to take up his mat, and to walk. Now the Jews pound on this, accusing the man. In this verse, they are saying, hey man, listen, it is the Sabbath, and how dare you took up these things and you started walking. Why is this such a big deal, church? Why is it such a big deal? Church, in the Mosaic law, Israelites who broke the command of against working on the Sabbath, they faced death penalty. They faced death penalty. Look at this, Exodus Exodus 31, 15. It goes on to say like this, at the beginning work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day is is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. And then he says, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. I'm sure you can see where this is leading now. Here's a man who was lame and he worked on Sabbath. He needs to be put to death. That is how the Jews are looking at this. They started accusing this man of breaking the Sabbath restrictions. So understanding the consequences of his action on the Sabbath day, the man was really petrified he was so anxious, and, and, and the man sorts of pleads, and look at verse number 11, what he says here. This is how he responded. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. So the man stood up for his own defense, he said, no, 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 it was not me, I didn't do it. I'm not responsible for that, I would never do such a thing, but the one who healed me made me do this act of work. That's what he said. So the Jews were not willing to let it go. They needed to pin down the person who was responsible for breaking the Sabbath. So they go on and ask him this question, verse number 12 and 13. Look at the passage again. Then they, meaning the Jews, asked him, Who is the man who said to you, who is this? To take up the, your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So unfortunately, what we see here, they could not get to know the one who caused this man to break the Sabbath because Jesus withdrew himself from the crowd. It's interesting, isn't it? Interesting records. Now, keep reading, verse number 14. Afterward, Jesus found him who... The crippled man who was healed. So Jesus comes back. He found this man in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. What do you take from this? We take that Jesus comes back, and he finds this man who was healed, and he tells him, Do not sin anymore. And he says that Jesus warns him, If you continue to sin, something worse may happen to you. Now see how the man responds. He is not worried about what Jesus was saying. He was happy that he found the one who caused him to break the Sabbath law. See his response in verse number 15. Then the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. See, in other words, he was saying that it was him, it was this guy, who caused me to break the Sabbath law. Of course, he was naturally happy that he was healed, but there is no record of him thanking the Lord in this passage. There is no remorse about his sinfulness, but he remembered the accusation directed at him by the Jews for breaking the Sabbath. Now he wants to blame it all on Jesus. So he identifies Jesus to the Jews, just like who? Judas Iscariot. Remember the story at the very end when Judas betrayed Jesus? What an expression of gratitude, church. Man who was crippled for 38 years. It's not me, it's him. Put him to death. So what we observe is this is not a story with a happy ending, isn't it? And where we see someone who was healed becoming a believer. Now, you heard me say that from day one onwards, because this begs a question, because John wrote this gospel with this one and sole purpose that we would believe in Jesus Christ as Christ and the Son of God. That is the purpose why this was written. So you wonder why on earth did John, Apostle John, include this narrative? This sign that, is, that is, did not lead to this, this crippled man to be saved. I'm talking from a spiritual perspective. In, the Bible doesn't say that they believed in Jesus. So why did this? why did John write this? We find the answer in verse number 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus. For what reason? The reason that he broke the Sabbath law persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now you get it. Now you see that John included this story because it illustrates the irrational but growing hostility of the Jewish leaders toward Jesus that led to his crucifixion. So the Jews began to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath day. So how does Jesus respond to this charge? Now, very interesting as you look at this passage, his response is very ironic for the Jews because it simply infuriated them even more. Because as you read through the rest of the passage, which you heard being read earlier, we will see that this particular incident set the stage for Jesus to make some of the strongest statements for his deity in the Bible. As to who he was. So before we dive into the text of the passage. Let us understand what does Sabbath mean to Christ and to us. Why is this such a big deal? And someone might ask the question. Did Jesus violate the Sabbath law? Did he? It's important note that Jesus was not violating the law of God. When he healed on the Sabbath. Church, you you have to understand this very clearly. He was surely acting against the pharisaical interpretation of the law and against their particular rules. That's what Jesus is doing here. The basic reason why Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath was that people needed his help. So we should understand When God meant when he gave instructions to observe the Sabbath day, this is what we see in Genesis 2-3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested. Hear me clearly. From all his work that he had done in creation. He rested from what? From all his work that he had done in creation. So, on the Sabbath day, God is resting or ceasing from the work of what? Creation. That is what he is resting from. So, an important point about God's rest on the seventh day is he only ceased from new creative work. Not from all activity. You have to get this clearly, church. Church. God is not distant from his creation on the Sabbath day. Nor did he leave the universe to run by itself from that point on, on that particular day. The Lord is still intimately involved in all that he created even on the Sabbath day. And we studied in the book of Colossians how Jesus upholds and sustains his creation. All seven days, It is just that the Lord is no longer creating new things such as making new planets or commanding new animals into being. So when the Jews accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, instead of defending his actions, now Jesus responds by putting his own activity on the Sabbath on par with God's activity. That's what Jesus is doing here. So he was implying that he was God. That was Jesus' defense. So when they accused him of making himself equal with God, Jesus goes on to affirm it. And in our next text, as we go through that, there are six ways that we'll find in which Jesus emphatically claims his deity. Let's read on verses 17 and 18 here. 17 here first. But Jesus answered what? My father has been working until now than I have been working. Verse 18. He says, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. So what I'm seeing here in this passage, church, is that firstly, Jesus is equal with God in his nature. That's what he's talking about here. This is the form of defense. He's not saying why he was doing, he was saying that I am God. That's exactly what God did. He sustained the universe on the Sabbath. So he's saying I'm equal with God, equal in nature. What do we understand here, church, in response to Jesus' Jews' accusation of breaking the Sabbath? Look at this passage again. Jesus answers, my father is working until now. Look at the first one. And I myself am working. Jesus did not see our father is working. He did not see our father in heaven is working. How do we say our Father in heaven, isn't it? Meaning the Almighty God. Here he says, my Father. And John explains when he says my Father, he says in in the second part, he says, for this reason, he says, he talks about, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because God was his Father making himself equal with God. So for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, saying that he was equal with God. So the term my father, when Jesus speaks of that, it speaks of the most intimate relationship that he has with him. He was claiming he partook of the same nature as his father. That's equality. And later on we can see in the John's Gospel, we'll be studying that later, where the Lord says, I and the Father are one. See the bold statements the Lord Jesus was making. And as a result, the Bible says, the Jews again sought to kill him. Because for the anger of the Jews was seen clearly revealed in the later conversation as well. There was, later on we'll see in John chapter 10, Jesus asked the question, Why are you stoning me? Is it what type of good works that you didn't like? And here's the response they gave. Look at this. John chapter 10, For a good work we do not stone you. We are not stoning you for healing the people. We are not stoning you for any of the good work, but we are stoning you, look at this, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood the claim, but the problem was they didn't accept Jesus' claim. Because just as a human son shares his father's nature, Jesus shares the same nature as God the Father. Later on, in, 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 as we we'll, are going to look into that, Jesus refers to himself as son about nine times in this text alone. He is emphasizing his divine sonship. As the son, Jesus is equal to and yet functio- functionally subordinate to and distinct from the father. So the first thing, defense, is that Jesus is equal with God in nature. Secondly, look at this, what Jesus is saying. Again, in the same verse, I want us to look at verse number 17. Jesus is equal with God in his works. Not only in the nature, in his works. Look at this. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. So Jesus links his own activity directly with God's activity. That's what he's doing here. You know what that means, church? The the Jews acknowledge that after creation, God worked. They all acknowledge that. God worked, meaning that he sustained the universe on that day, on the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying here, to accuse me of Sabbath breaking is accusing God of Sabbath breaking. Because he's my father, and I work exactly as he works. The Father works continuously, including on the Sabbath, so do I. That's what Jesus is saying here. It also implies that Jesus always has been working alongside the Father. Now we know that the very beginning of this chapter, of this, of this book, in the Gospel of John, we know that how Jesus was involved in creation. He created the universe. We studied that on the very first day or the second second day. So basically what we are seeing here, Jesus has been working with the Father since the beginning of time. Jesus was claiming to be God. Jews got it. They were upset. They were angry. So they sought all the more to kill him because he was making himself equal to God. And look at verse 19, how Jesus responded. Verse number 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, that means truly, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. I want you to place yourself in the position of the Jews, how angry you would be, when whom they consider as a normal man making these claims. Naturally, they wanted to get rid of him. Naturally. Jesus uses this word truly, truly three times in this discourse as we study this. He wants us to take special note of what he says. See, in verse 19, in this verse, the first thing he affirms, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. He will not do anything different from what the father is doing. It's not a statement of weakness or limitation, church. But rather, his absolute unity with the Father in nature and in will. That's what it is. He's saying that it's impossible for the Son to act independently of the Father because they share the same nature. What the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Father does. In other words, what Jesus is saying in Jesus, we see God. When Jesus worked, it was God working. Whatever Jesus did was an act of God. Whatever Jesus said was the word of God. I wanted to see this connection here, how Jesus is telling or teaching these Jews that he is God. He is God. So there was was no moment of Jesus' life or no action of Jesus which did not express the life and action of the Father. If you read the last part of this church, For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. What does this say? It explains why it's impossible for the Son to do anything by himself. He cannot do anything by himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. So John's, Apostle John's point is that while Jesus as the Son of God, subordinate to the Father, carries out his work in obedience to him, He is at the same time fully equal to the Father as God. Because no lesser being could make the claim of verse 19. So, so far we have looked at two things, church. Number one is that Jesus is equal with God in his nature and equal with God in his works. And thirdly, verse 20, look at verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you marvel. What Jesus is saying here, Jesus is equal with God in his love and knowledge. I'm equal with God, not only in his nature, not only in his works, but in love and knowledge. In this verse, Jesus explains how the Son can do whatever the Father does because the Father shows everything to the Son. Nothing that the Father does is unknown. That's what he's saying. The Father shows him all things. The Father's love for the Son is seen by his disclosing to the Son everything that he is doing. Talking about the Father's love for the Son, John MacArthur makes this observation and I want you to hear this. He says that the heart of God's redeeming work is not God's love for you, is not God's love for me, is not God's love for the world, is not God's love for the sinners. At the heart of redemption is the Father's love for the Son. The Son's love for the Father. You ask why? John MacArthur goes on to say this, and I quote from him, the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history, is so that So that God can collect a bride to give to his son. A bride that's an expression of his love. Wow. That's his expression of his love. Who is the bride? You and I are the bride. So the father will give to the son a redeemed humanity. Collected one day in heaven forever and ever and ever. To praise and serve and glorify the son always be an everlasting expression of the Father's love. That's what they're saying here. That's how much the Father loves His Son. The knowledge is also equally shared between the Father and the Son, and, and, and the term that you see, the greater work, show Him greater works than these are going to come up in the next two verses. So, so far, we have seen that Jesus is presenting His case, saying, I'm equal to God in nature and work and His love and His knowledge, And fourthly, we see in verse 21, look at this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Imagine how angry the Jews would be. How dare you say this? You are saying that God, the Father, raises the dead and gives life to them, and you are going to do that? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. So the fourth statement that we see here, Jesus is presenting his case. He's saying, I am equal with God in his sovereign power. This is a startling claim, church, where a mere man could claim that he could give life to whomever he wished. If someone in your congregation today stand up and say that, I can give life to whoever I wish, you will say you are a lunatic. You are a liar. Because we know only the Lord can do it. So life here, church, it means in one level, Jesus' ability to raise dead physically. And he did that on three occasions, at least we see in the scriptures. One is the widow of the nine son and Jairus' daughter and Lazarus. How Jesus brought these people back to life. We also must note, church, that at the end of the age, Jesus will give the command that all the dead from all ages will rise, either for judgment or eternal life. We'll study that later. So Jesus has the power to give physical life to whomever he likes, and he raised the dead physically at the end of the age. It shows us that he also has the sovereign power to give spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. We should be thankful to God for that church. That is why we have this new life in Christ. This new life in Christ. Look at this passage. We'll, we'll look at it next time, but I just want to highlight it for you today. In verse 24, he said, Most assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, Jesus is saying that, and believes in him who sent me, that is God, has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So as this verse 24 states to have eternal life, we must hear Jesus' word and believe in him. Everybody say the word believe. Believe in him. Believe in Jesus to have eternal life. So Jesus initiates the process as we read this. We cannot believe in him or know the Father unless the Son wills it. That's what he's seeing in this passage. So we cannot take away any credit for our salvation. He gets all the glory. So church, so far, Jesus is defending his case. He has said, I'm equal with God in his nature, in his works, in his love and knowledge, in his power. And fifthly, in verse 22, look at this. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Who is the Son? Jesus. So fifthly, he's saying Jesus is equal to God in judgment. I am the one who is going to pass judgment on you. In verse 21, the roles of the Father and Son are parallel in giving life. But in verse 22, in this verse, we see that Father has declared all judgment to the Son because He is the Son of Man. Because He took on human flesh and died for the sins of the world, the Father delegated all judgment to Jesus. You see this in the Luke's account. Look at this Acts chapter 17 verse 31, beautifully presented. Luke writes it, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. He has fixed the time in which he will judge the world. The Lord knows when he is going to judge the world. You know, many of us live as if we are going to be here for eternity. Many of us. We do not think about the brevity and the uncertainty of life. Church, I want to pause here and tell you there was a lovely, lovely, lovely individual who supported us immensely in our missions by collecting so many good stuff for us in Toronto. She lives in Pickering. She was living in Pickering. Collected so many good stuff for us and month after month, year after year, she supplies and she she funds our projects. Last, not this Wednesday, last Wednesday, she was doing very well. I met her at a wedding recently on the first week in April. She came from work, she's at home, and she had a headache. And she collapsed. Brain aneurysm. And she died last after a week. Did the family know when they met me on the day of the wedding? Did she know on that day that she was going to last only another month? No. No. We take life for granted, church. We think we are here for eternity. We think that day won't come for us. It came. After the service today, I'm going to visit the family in in Pickering. You know what, church? Church? Look at this passage. Because he has appointed a day. There is a day that God has appointed. He will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By the man whom he has ordained. By whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said earlier that I'm going to judge. But to be a just and fair judge... Jesus has to possess all knowledge of all people who have ever lived. Church, think about this. Think about this for a moment. If an earthly judge is missing some key facts, most likely he will make an, a, a, a wrong judgment, isn't it? If he doesn't have all the facts. But we know that Jesus is a true judge a fair judge, a just judge, so that he, know, he should know everything about me. Church, everybody say everything. Everything. We had, I thank you son for the morning devotion and it was uh, before the pre-service prayer, sorry, during the pre-service prayer it was exhorted to us how God knows every part of our lives. Everything he knows. Because he has to know everything in order to judge us fairly. Isn't it? Sometimes in this world, some people bring about an accusation. We try to defend ourselves because you don't know all the facts we tell them, isn't it? You cannot say that to the Lord Jesus. Jesus, you don't know all the facts. Let me tell you why I did that. Mm -hmm. I know why you did it. Why? Because he is an omniscient God. Omniscient God. So if someone can come and make a claim that I'm going to be the judgment, if Jesus says this, naturally, there can be one or two things. He must be a lunatic. He must be a liar. Or he must be the Lord. So, so far Jesus has said, I'm equal with God in nature, in works, in love and knowledge, in power, in judgment. And lastly, look at this. This would have infuriated them. Verse number 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. They're telling the Jews, look at me. You call Yahweh. You honor Him. You better honor me the same way that you're honoring Yahweh. Imagine. It's opening up like a can of worms kind of thing, isn't it? What on earth are you saying, Jesus? He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. If Jesus is not fully God, then his words in verse number 23 are nothing short of blasphemy. Nothing short of blasphemy. What created being could say that we should honor him just as we honor the Father? Certainly we can see that Jesus is claiming to be God. So what do we take from this church? It means that you can test anyone's claim to believe in God by their views of Jesus. Jesus if they claim to believe in god but they think that jesus was a good teacher they do not believe in the living and true god they only believe in a god of their own making just like the jehovah witnesses and just like the other cults if they do not honor jesus they do not honor the father john calvin puts it so beautifully This is what he says, I quote, The name of God, when it is separated from Christ, is nothing else than a vain imagination. Let me repeat that. The name of God, when it is separated from Christ, is nothing else than a vain imagination. Later on, as we read through, Apostle John writes again in his epistle, he says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. One who confesses the Son has the Father. So Jesus is equal with the Father in belief and in worship. So church, in conclusion, what do we see here? The Jews witnessing the healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath came to Jesus, accusing him of breaking the laws of Sabbath. Jesus not only told him that Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath, but he goes on to establish that he is Lord. He is not a lunatic. He is not a liar. He established his deity. He compared himself to God himself and claimed that, this is what he claimed, Jesus is equal to God with God in his nature, in his works, in in his love and knowledge, in his power, in his judgment, and in worship. Church, many of us believe that Jesus is God. Many who are seated here, if that belief has not changed us, it's only an intellectual belief that Jesus is God. You must also believe in Him as your Savior from sin and judgment and live in submission to Him as the Lord of your life. What does that mean, church? Believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior, it would cause a spiritual transformation. It is the process by which Christ is formed in us. It is far beyond that intellectual knowledge, head knowledge. It is not the head information, it's the heart transformation. So my question to you today is that, is Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? Talk is cheap, church. We can talk the spiritual jargon very well. If he is your Lord and Savior, it will be seen in the testimony of your life. I want to tell you a small story, Anthony. I don't like stories during sermon, but I just want to tell you this because it illustrates a the point. There was a king who had two sons, and he asked the, asked the sons, is a gentleman made or is he born? So one son said, the gentleman is born. And he said, another son said, the gentleman is made. He said, okay, I give you one week to prove Either your positions, otherwise you will be executed. You know, king doesn't mean, he doesn't mix his words. So both sons were sent out and they went and looking for evidence to prove that gentleman is born, one son, gentleman is made, the other son. So the son was talking about gentleman is made, he went and saw in a restaurant, he went there, he saw a cat that was walking. Somebody said, you know, bring some food and the cat brought the food. He was so happy to see the cat, walking cat, and he said, my goodness, gentlemen must be made. If a cat can be made to walk, a man can be made into a gentleman. So he said, can I borrow this hat, hat uh, the cat, and I want to show it to the king? They said, of course you take it. So the day came, the, now the talk about the walking, walking cat was in the, in the whole country, and everybody was curious to see this walking cat, and the second fellow was so confused, I don't know how to outbeat that. But thank God he found a solution. So the day came that the the banquet table was open and the king was seated. And he said, okay, first son, bring, show me. He said, gentleman is made. What's the proof? He said, bring some wine. And this little cat brought the wine. The king was so excited to see a walking cat serving wine. Took the wine and kept it. And the cat went back. And he called the second fellow. You better prove, otherwise you'll be executed. He said, bring the wine. So the cat is bringing wine again. He had a small box in his hand, opened a small mice, let it go. What do you you think the cat did? It dropped. It ran behind the mice. The moment you saw the temptation, you drop, you run after it. Some of us are like the walking cat. Till we see a mice. When this temptation strikes us, your true testimony is revealed. You know, is he the Lord of your life? If so, you know what? We are sure, we are certain of our place in his tabernacle, isn't it? And I want to close out with this. David asked this question. Psalm 15. It convicted me so badly. So I just thought I should, convict, I, I should bring, it, bring about here. In Psalm 15, David asked this question. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? In response, David spells out a checklist. It's a good checklist for all of us. True believers. Whether we are a walking cat or we are truly transformed individuals. Look at this. The first one is found in verse number two. If you are truly a believer, it says, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, you walk blamelessly and do what is right. If you are truly a born-again believer, if you truly have him as the Lord and your Savior, A blameless person, you live a blameless life, there won't be an iota, and you will avoid the appearance of evil. That's blameless life. This is why, church, I tell you that we should completely abstain from even having a little bit of wine. Why do I say that? Because you avoid any appearance of evil. A blameless person is a person who is innocent of doing wrongdoing. And the second thing that we see in the same verse is that you speak the truth in your heart. Can that be said about you? Can that be said about you? Can you be trusted? Thirdly, the next verse, he says, He who does not backbite with his tongue and nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against a friend. You do not slander with your tongue. You do not tell stories about others that would make them look bad, even if they are true. You know how to control your tongue. You do not you do no, no evil to your neighbor and take up a reproach against your friend. You are kind to all who are near and you do not listen to bad talk about your friends. And then in verse number four, David says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and do not change. In your eyes a vile person is despised and you honor those who fear the Lord. Is that you? You honor those with good character. You avoid those who talk behind other people's back. Do you get together with them and talk? You seek out friendship with those who fear the Lord. And then you also see here, you swear to his own hurt and does not change. You keep your promises. Even when it hurts them or would cause them to suffer a loss. Your word is your bond. And they do not change. Can that be said about you? And then the last verse, he says, He who does not put out his money at usury, meaning giving out for interest, nor does he take a bribe against innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. You do not put out your money at interest or take bribe against the innocent. You do not put your personal interest before others. You do not allow money to sway the way you treat someone. You act justly. Can that be said about you, church? If he is your Lord. If he is your Lord. Can I ask the worship team to come? They're going to sing a nice uh, hymn or, or a song. It's called, He is Lord, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. And as we join church, ask yourself the question, am I a walking cat who is dressed up nicely? Or am I truly a believer, trusting in the deity of Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the Lord and Savior of your life? And if not, please make that commitment to you today. Do not leave the sanctuary. He says, if you confess, He is faithful and just. He will forgive us. He will cleanse us. He will not hold anything against you. May today be the day of, sal- of salvation to some and for rededication to others. May we all stand and I'm just going to li- ask you to sing together with an attitude of prayer. And I'll close with the prayer at the end. Let's sing.